Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. First Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 to 14 is what we'll read, but we'll go to the end of the chapter. If you have a pew Bible, you can find that in front of you, in the seat in front of it, you can look to page 234, 234. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word here now the word of the Lord. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped, encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. This is the word of the Lord. We have been going through the first book of Samuel, and at first glance, when we come upon this chapter, it may seem like a very bizarre chapter. And it's inserted between the narrative left, well, that left us hanging from verse 2. So from verses 3, it's a change, and it seems like it's a little bizarre. In chapter 25, I also had mentioned that Samuel's death acts as a sort of hinge verse between the chapters. And here, too, it acts as a similar fashion. It's a flashback to Samuel's death, to remind us that it's important for the next part that Samuel has indeed died, and because of the necromancy we're about to witness next. If you watch the movie Valkyrie, then you know about the failed attempt at the assassination of Adolf Hitler. The movie was named after Operation Valkyrie 
where on July 20th, 1944, Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg would plant an explosive briefcase where Hitler would be holding a meeting with his staff. So Stauffenberg would plant the briefcase under the table where Hitler was, and then he would leave quickly after. But you see, while Hitler and his staff were studying a map on the table, there was a colonel named Heinz Brandt, and he wanted to get a better look at the map because the table wasn't big enough. So he wanted to get a better look at the map. So what he did was he moved the briefcase out of the way at the very last moment, and that briefcase was moved further away from Hitler. And when the bomb went off, Hitler was still alive. He would later round up all those that were part of this assassination attempt, this coup, and he would kill them all. And this would include whom some of you may know, the works you have read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a part of that group. Hitler was convinced after that. He survived this assassination attempt. A bomb went off just a few feet next to him, and he was alive. And he was convinced that fate spared him. This, was, this is what he would say. I regard this as a confirmation of the task imposed upon me by providence and that nothing is going to happen to me. The great cause which I will serve will be brought through its present perils and everything can be brought to a good end. Afterwards, Someone gave Hitler a letter, and this letter would have predicted the assassination attempt. And this fascinated Hitler, so much so that he found out how it was predicted. It was predicted by an astrologist, by an occultist, and so he would set up his own astrology team. You see, one of his closest men, they were already, like Himmler, he was already obsessed with the occult. And Goebbels, we talked about Joseph Goebbels before, but he decided to use this to his own advantage. And what he did was in all of Germany, he would ban other astrological practices outside the team that the government would set up. So they would pick other occult diviners, like what we know as radiesthesiologists or what they, we would know them more uh, familiar as uh, water dousers. It's when you have this little pendulum, and if there's an object with energy from the earth, the pendulum would move. That's an occult diviner. And he would set up these occult diviners to try to help figure out where the Allies' ships were, like the British ships were located at sea. They would have this huge map. And they would have these diviners going around, and whenever the pendulum would kind of vibrate, they would go, oh, there must be a British ship here. And he would send his whole army and his navy there. Hitler became obsessed with the occult. And we know that there's evidence and pictures of him even holding seances during war room meetings. A lot of folk are convinced that the absence of God is the answer to human flourishing. We don't need God. Too much God is no good. So the absence of God is better for human flourishing. The absence of God led Hitler to look for other things 
answers in other things. In our country today, a study from the Pew Forum on Religious and Public Life shows us that 20% of U.S. adults claim no religious affiliation. That's one out of five U.S. adults claim to be a nun. That means N-O-N-E-S. They claim that they have no religious affiliation. If you look at the, the pattern, that's an increase of 5% in five years. And most of these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because when they were asked to check a box for their religious affiliation, they would write none. That's why they're called nuns. Most of these nuns are not atheistic or even agnostic. They claim they just don't want to make religion a priority in their lives. But in doing so, what we are seeing now, just in a matter of years in these increases, we are seeing now videos of women performing rituals before taking abortion pills or saying how they must appease Mother Nature or Gaia and so do all these environmental things. What we are seeing now, that these nuns aren't actually nuns at all. They are just pagans. Hitler, in the absence of God, became obsessed with the occult and its practices. And in the end, it would lead to his ruin. The Allies were pressing in from the West, and the Russians from the East, and the Germans were taking devastating losses. But not to worry, Goebbels told Hitler it's been written in the stars already. And he would say, the last half of April will be a turning point for us. He would point out that there are two astrological predictions that had forecasted the hardest blows in the beginning of the year until the first half of April. But once you got to the second half of April, Germany would, would achieve an overwhelming victory. Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, 1945. In our passage today, we are told about Samuel's death, and it is immediately followed by what Saul did. What did Saul do? He banned the practice of divinations and necromancy from the kingdom. This isn't some big thing. It's in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 to 22. It was the right practice. If you remember orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. If you have the right doctrine, and in this case, Deuteronomy 18, then you will have the right practice, the banning of mediums and necromancers. However, this is immediately followed by verse 4, where it says that the Philistines were back in town. And so Saul would gather his entire army at Gilboa in response to the Philistines making camp at Shunem. But there was something very different about this particular battle. In this coming battle, it says in verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Saul had fought against the Philistines his whole life as king, and he had the experience and know-how. He had somehow dealt with them one way or another. 
in the past, but this time it was different. The Philistines were encamped at Shunem, and Shunem was about 17 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, but it was 20 miles north of Aphek. What that means is that Aphek was the city closest to Israel, and that Philistine city had already moved 20 miles in an instant like that. And so by camping at Gilboa, there's a mount there, Mount Gilboa, Saul was able to have a vantage point to see what was going on on the plains. He saw the enemy's movements, that flat ground that this whole army was moving in. And we know now that they had chariots. They had this great advantage. This route that they were on would go through a trade route and through the plain of Esdra-Elon and would effectively cut off Saul from the northern tribes. So they would cut Saul off by going through this trade route, and in the, along the way, they would trample Saul's army. And perhaps Saul was right to greatly tremble. Saul would then turn to God for help. Even though he acted like God didn't exist perhaps in the past, you know what they say though, right? You can act like God doesn't exist, but what they say is there are no atheists in foxholes or there are no atheists on the battlefield. Saul had no other course than to turn to Yahweh, but God did not answer him. And it looks like Saul had exhausted all the ways he could get an answer from the Lord. Dreams, Urim, which is a way of divination through a priest's robe, right? Or by prophets. He's tried it all, and it did not work. But in verse 7, even though Saul had banned all mediums, he asks for one. This, by the way, is a good test to know if you are a Christian. When the going gets tough, are you still a Christian? Do you still obey God? Or instead, do you turn to things that you claim to have repented of? What's actually more interesting is that when Saul asks his men to find him a medium, they know exactly where to look. They go to her in the night, and Saul dresses in non-royal attire, and then they meet her. His request is simple, straightforward. Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And she, listening to this, immediately smells cop. And she's like, are you wearing a wire? And Saul immediately swears that he is not. I'm not wearing a wire, I swear. But here's the ironic part. He swears by the name of Yahweh. The one he is pointedly disobeying by going to a medium. When you swear by something, you swear on its life. So Saul is swearing by Yahweh's life so that he could do exactly what Yahweh is forbidding, exactly what God is condemning. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy 18, God calls this act abominable. This is something that God detests. The woman medium consents and asks Saul for the name. And as soon as Saul says Samuel, the woman sees Samuel and cries out 
and she immediately sees at the same time through Saul's disguise as well. After reassuring her, Saul confirms that it is indeed Samuel that was brought up and bows his face to the ground and pays homage. And that is what we read up to this morning. But even up to here, there must be a lot of questions that come up. Like, wasn't Israel forbidden to engage in these sort of practices? Yes. Yes, they were. And how could God let this happen? Well, the church also engages in practices that the Lord forbids. Then, the next question could be, was it really Samuel that came up? Was it a charade? Perhaps the medium was really good and she could fake it. And to that I want to respond, no, I don't think so. Then if not, maybe she instead brought up a demon. Again, I don't think so. Then how could it be the real Samuel? Are you saying that Samuel was yanked out of paradise or Hades to this world by the power of this woman medium? Well, it's possible. That's the troubling part of this chapter. There seem to be a lot of church fathers who thought so as well. This debate on what exactly happened here throughout church history has been fierce and it has been intense. And perhaps the text is left ambiguous for us so that not all the ins and outs of the afterlife are shown to us. It's like a dad who says to his kid, when you're driving, the kid is asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the father turning around saying, we'll get there when we get there. So what about the afterlife? We'll get there when we get there. But there are hints and clues that were given in the text that we're going to mine. First of all, first of all, when she saw Samuel first, then she cried out, right? So it's not that she cried out and then Samuel came up. She saw Samuel and then she cried out, meaning that according to this order of events, she, this medium, was not in control of what was transpiring. Secondly, it's not a matter of actually what works or doesn't. That's not the main point here. It's a matter of what is obedience and what is evil. This is how 1 Chronicles summarizes Saul's life. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, it says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So while the debate can rage on whether necromancy worked at the time, we must understand that the scriptures don't forbid things because they don't work. The scriptures forbid things because they are evil. So was it really Samuel? Yes, I think so. I don't think it was a demon and that God would control the demon like a puppet. 
to say what he wanted to? I mean, it could be. But there's nothing in the text that would suggest that this would be the case. But we are to see what this brought up. You can be utilitarian, meaning whatever works, whatever you think will bring me happiness, you may think whatever has utility, but there is morality to our actions. You cannot separate morality from action. Even if it works or you think it has utility, if it is evil, it will bring you death. It will destroy. So that was the intro from verses 1 through 14. And I have the rest of the points, and they are as follows. Hopelessness, desperation, and the Last Supper. Hopelessness, desperation, and the Last Supper. Hopelessness. The following verse, verse 15, may be, and commentators also say this, the following verse, verse 15, may be the saddest verse in all of 1 Samuel, and maybe even one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. This is what verse 15 says. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel says, what do you want? And Saul says some of the saddest words to ever be spoken. God has turned away from me. You can be king. You can command the loyalty of all the people of the land, all the riches that entail kingship of a prosperous nation can belong to you. But when you hear the shouts of the Philistines and not the voice of God, what does it all amount to? It amounts to, I have no shepherd and I have been found wanting. You can be charged with leading God's people, but if God isn't leading you, where are you going? And so just as Saul believed Samuel came to him from Hades, Saul is now descending into the valley of the shadow of death. There is a prodigious amount of fear. Yahweh is not with him. And in this crisis, he is alone. What does Samuel say to him, though? He reminds him of what he said in chapter 15 and explicitly says this time, it's David to whom the kingdom will go to. The Lord will not answer him. Why? In verse 18, it says, because he did not obey. He did not listen to God's word and kill all the Amalekites. This is not a nice thing to say. It's not a kind word, but it is clear if you do not listen to God's word, he will take it away from you. If you don't heed his commands, he will not answer you. So when you hear the word of God, when should you obey? When you hear the gospel, when do you need to respond? Not tomorrow. There's a story that Spurgeon tells in his autobiography where a man in his life 
taunted and mocked Spurgeon. He would call him hypocrite. And if you know Spurgeon, he was the prince of preachers, as he was dubbed. Now, on his deathbed, this man, desperate, he calls for Spurgeon. And this is what Spurgeon writes. He had, and this is quoting from Spurgeon's autobiography, he had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony, he had superstitiously sent for me. Too late, he sighed for the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter in at the closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left him then for repentance, for he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted to him. This is a scary thing to write. But repentance, what we are to understand, repentance is something granted to you for a time. It's not something that will always be there. In our arrogance, our pride, we think we can repent anytime we want. But this is a lie. You are not in control of when you can repent. The opportunity is given to you by God at the time of His choosing, not yours. And even though you may want to repent, what happens is if that opportunity is not there, you can only feel sorry for yourself and tremble with great fear. And you will look to something else, something, anything that might alleviate your terrifying standing before God. The most fearful hopelessness we can ever experience in life is to be abandoned by God. Next point is desperation. This led Saul into a desperate state, and in his desperation, he would travel to Endor. Endor was two to three miles, two to three miles northeast of Shunem. Remember where the Philistines were camped? It was two to three miles northeast of Shunem. By leaving his camp and traveling so close to the Philistine camp, he was taking a considerable risk. He was desperate. He was desperate. But why was he desperate? What was the source of his desperation? Was it his love for God or even the fear of God? No, it was the fear of being decimated by the Philistines. So then, a desperation, even if it entails somewhere where it looks like you're seeking God, it can be a misdirected desperation. The instruction is given to Saul in the form of a question. Samuel asks this in verse 16. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Now you have to pay close attention to the words, the objects, the direct and indirect objects of this question. He is telling Saul that his quest shouldn't have been to seek Samuel, but to seek Yahweh, since it is his face that was turned from you. What Saul needed wasn't information with God or from God. What Saul needed was communion with God. The great blessing that people of God were taught to have is God's face to turn to you and give you shalom or peace. This is when you want the gift, but not the giver.
This is when you want the results, but not the Savior. If this is you, then, how do you repent? How can you seek God truly? Well, it's in his word. In Psalm 13, I'm going to read the whole psalm for you. In Psalm 13, David cries out to God when he was in a similar situation. Psalm 13, he writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. When David thinks that God has turned his face away, what does he do? Does he go to necromancers or the occult or astrology or some other paganistic ritual? No. He prays. Three times David prays calling out the name of God, Yahweh. What do the people of God do when they feel as if God's face is turned away? They turn to God not away from him. In John chapter 6, verse 67 and 60 to 69, when the teachings of Jesus got too hard, they started to leave Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. It says many of his disciples then left him when the going got tough. That's when Jesus would turn to the twelve, and this is what he would ask in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If not, where else would we go? When things get tough, the occult and paganism aren't things that we can turn to because then we will be looking for the gift rather than the giver, guidance rather than the guide, good rather than God. Desperation must be directed at the one with whom we must commune. Here's the last point, the last supper. After Samuel speaks his word, Saul collapses. Because of these words, he is filled with fear. There's just no more strength in him. He hadn't eaten anything all day, all night. The woman medium comes back to Saul and sees that he is terrified. She urges him to eat something that she will prepare. He initially says no, for how can anyone even think about eating in a situation like this? But after she and the men that were with him urge him further, he gets up and sits on the bed. She cooks a meal, and forgive the pun, she cooks a meal fit for a king. And after they eat, they get up and leave that night. I call this Saul's last supper, because the next day they go out and fight to the Philistines to his death. There is another last supper that this may remind you of. 
the Passover dinner that Jesus presided over before he went out into the night to face not just the darkness of night, but to face the utter wrath of God. In the sixth hour, it says in Mark 15, darkness covered the whole land. And Jesus in that darkness would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus encountered the full wrath of God on that cross. He walked into the outer darkness in order that you can walk into his marvelous light. We were once a rebellious people destined for God's wrath, but God in his mercy chose us to hear the good news and respond. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I would imagine that there are some even listening now here who feel as if God's face has turned from you. So what do you do when you feel like God has turned his face away from you? Be still. Know that he is the Lord. He is God. Hold on to his word. Obey his commandments. Trust in God as your Savior. Look to the true source. That is to say, all that is to say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, because of your Son, Jesus Christ, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. We pray now that we may live lives in accordance to your will, that would please you, that would glorify you. Help us, O oh God, in our hardest times, to look to you and not away, to call out to you, holding on to the promises we have received in your holy word, by your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God, asking Him to continue to do a good work that we may be Christians, people who turn to God always in all circumstances, holding on to the promise that He is with us through all things. Let's pray.